Mr. Franklin? I'm ready. It's Ira Glass here. Uh, you're the MC on the show, Ira. I am the MC on the oh, show, yes. Oh, great. Ira, Ira, Ira? Ira, I-R-A. Oh, great. Now, hold on one second, Ira. Don't, don't go away. Hello? Sheldon, call me after 3 o'clock. I've got great news for you, Sheldon. Ira. Yes. So, uh, <clears throat> listen, Tony. If the phone rings, take it in the back. And then tell me, then come out and tell me who it is. Just say, just say Joe's being with a camera crew. Just for about ten minutes. We'll, we'll do about five minutes, ten minutes, right, Ira? That's right. Well, you know, one great thing about starting a new show is utter anonymity. <laughs> Nobody really knows what to expect from you. This interviewee did not know us from Adam. Okay, well, what? About a minute. We're one minute five into the new show. Right now, it is stretching in front of us. A perfect future yet to be fulfilled. An uncharted little world. A little baby coming into the world. No little scars in order or anything. Nobody hearing my words right now is thinking, Oh, man. Remember that show? Back when it used to be good? Oh, sure, I never missed that show. Back in the old days. Back in the first couple years. Before it got so-called popular back when it was still good and actually I think that 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 force that that human desire to say to say that is so strong to say that I was there I was there back when that show was good that force is so strong it is so basic to who we are as people that I know um okay what are we where we are two minutes into the program I know that somewhere out there one or two of you are saying, Oh, sure, I used to listen to that show back in the back in the first 30 seconds. Back when it used to be really good. Remember that remember the back back when they used to do all that crazy stuff? When they had that guy on the phone? Remember back then? Well, from WBEZ in the glorious city of Chicago, Illinois, name of this show is Your Radio Playhouse. I'm a, I'm your MC. <laughs> I'm your MC. Ira Glass. Okay, the idea of this show, this new little show, is stories. Some by journalists and documentary producers like myself. Some just regular people telling their own little stories. Some by artists and writers and performers of all different kinds. And the idea is we're going to bring you stuff you're not going to find anywhere else. And there's also going to be music. And tonight's show, we thought we would have kind of a theme. Tonight's show is going to be New Beginnings. And to kick things off, I called the man who's had, as, as best as anybody can tell, the longest-running program in the history of television. Uh, his name is Joe Franklin, and his program ran for 43 years on local television in New York. And he claims that he invented the talk show format. And I called him to get some advice on how to create a long-running, healthy program. I've been called in many times to give sort of the dean, the elder statesman, even though I'm still a young kid, but I've been called in to give this kind of advice to new kids on the block. You know, Conan O'Brien had me on his first show and people like that. There's, there's no guidance. It's a matter of uh, the uh, paying attention. Your, your voice, I've, got a, I've, I've heard so much about the sparkle, about the energy in your voice. The voice, the voice on, on, on radio especially is everything. And, and uh, when the guest is sitting with you, you got to look into his eyes. You know, many times you get an author on there who's uh, begrudgingly uh, 
sitting there. He'd rather be home in his ivory tower. And and above all, get the plug fast. Otherwise, he's worried you're not going to make the plug for the book. And and I, I created a line ira that's been picked up uh, by George Burns. I used to I always said the, the main ingredient for longevity in the talk show field, where, where the mortality rate is so staggering, the main ingredient is sincerity. And once you learn to fake that. And you got it made. <laughs> I made that up. And, it's just, it's, and uh, I just played it by ear. I, I, I was a natural-born talker, I guess. But uh, so, so let me let me just summarize what I'm getting from this. You're saying, okay, I should I should be sure just to pay attention, look people in the eye, be sincere when I'm on the air. Right. Get in the plug early. That's right? the key. And don't look in their nose or their belly button. Look right in the eye. Eye contact is everything. And as I say, uh, it's it's a lot of fun, and uh, you know. I never called anybody in my life to come onto my show, and I'm sure that they'll be they'll be coming to you too. I I, I heard about you, and I called you and wanted to wish you good luck. I I, I imagine the thrill of John F. Kennedy walking into my studio, uh, Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan five times, and Bing Crosby. And I got a major book out right now, by the way. I recall Up Late with Joe Franklin from Simon and Schuster, and if you find a copy in the store. Uh, you see, now I guess I, I've sort of, uh, I've sort of messed that one up because I didn't let you get in your plug early. See, that is my fault. I got it toward the toward the bitter end. It's like, like, like Duke Ellington. You always used to have his dessert at the beginning of the meal. Duke Ellington said, "Because you never have no room for it at the end, so we had his dessert at the beginning." You know. Mm-hmm. Who, who is it? Well, no, good news, six o'clock. Well, Joe Franklin, thank you very much for being with us on I the show. I'm going to be a listener and a fan, and let's always be in touch. Come and take a trip in my rocket ship We'll have a lovely afternoon Kiss the world goodbye And away we'll fly Destination moon We'll travel fast as a light Till we're out of sight The earth will be like a toy balloon What a thrill you'll get riding On my jet A destination moon all right, your radio playhouse. All right, I'm making eye contact with you, right? Wait, how does Joe put it? Wait a second. Look right in the eye. Eye contact is everything. I am making eye contact with you right now. That is just how much I have already learned. Okay, well, so the thing about new beginnings, okay, is that is that there are the ones that we actually undertake, you know, and then there are the ones that we just wish for. And the ones that we wish for pretty much outnumber the ones that we really undertake. Well, Kevin Kelly spent most of his 20s wandering around Asia. And he was a freelance, he, would, he was basically wandering around as a freelance photographer. And he found himself photographing a lot of religious ceremonies and drawn to religious ceremonies of all sorts. And he says that he was really confused about what he believed. And he was the kind of person who'd always dreamt about a new beginning where he wouldn't struggle with these questions. I, I would get twisted and caught up and um, these things were sort of in the background consuming me and actually I found that that was I could think about little else for for many many months that that behind all that I was doing there was always this unresolved question of um, was God real um, if he was real then how could we ignore him and if he if we were trying to uh, not ignore him, what would we do and if um, he was real then what about these other things that people said about God we will not attempt to answer these questions, by the way, in this hour. I just want to just get, give you a sense of scope here, okay? Just modest sort of scope. Um, but what we want to talk about is what happened to Kevin Kelly. What happened is that, is that at the age of 27, all of this changed. When he came into Jerusalem, 
on the eve of Easter and Passover. It was the same weekend. And um, flocks of people, you know, coming into the city. So I entered Jerusalem on Easter um, with a simple expectation that I was going to photograph uh, yet another religious uh, ceremony, another religious uh, festival. And then um, for various reasons, I got locked out of my um, hostel room. They had a curfew, and um, I didn't make it back in time. Uh, and I was in quite a fix because I was a stranger in this uh, very strange town. Um, what had happened, I didn't have enough money to stay elsewhere, nor did I even have knowledge of where to go. So I wandered the old town of Jerusalem at night, which had been shuttered up and um, was uh, like a time machine. It was uh, as if I had been transported back to the 15th century because all the... Um, Souvenir vendors were gone, and what was left were the um, labyrinthian paths of cobbled uh, passageways, and I wandered around for a number of hours, and it was getting colder. Eventually, I found myself at the one uh, place that was still open, which was some of the churches, and um, particularly uh, after wandering around um, uh, until about 2 or 3 in the morning, um, I finally settled into the um, Church of the Holy Scepter, which is um, called and viewed as the church built over the um, mound where um, Jesus Christ was crucified. And um, I was getting very tired, and uh, there weren't many people around, and so eventually I laid myself uh, out on the about the only flat area that was left, which was this marble slab... Uh, underneath some um, pendants that had incense on them. And this was presumably the the slab that um, commemorated the exact position of the of the crosses. Uh, so I slept there. I, I slept on the um, the crucifixion spot uh, that night because it was the only place in, there no place in the inn. I slept there until um, uh, until early morning, um, when uh, the activity started to um, to increase and people started coming in. And um, uh, I went out and followed the crowd where it was going when they were going out to the um, to the tombs area uh, in Jerusalem. And I went out, and there was uh, um, some chairs set up, um, folding chairs set up in front of um, this tomb area. And as the sun was coming up on that Easter morning. Uh, I was staring at empty tombs, and um, for a reason that I cannot comprehend, as I sat on that chair contemplating and rest, uh, contemplating this, this uh, view of the sun, early sun morning coming into the empty tombs, all that I've been wrestling with for the past uh, many, many years in, in thinking about religion um, sort of became resolved in my mind. And at that very moment, I, I believed that uh, Jesus Christ had indeed um, risen from those tombs. In an instant, the, the, the tension of, of trying to figure things out was resolved because now suddenly uh, everything was figured out. 
it was as if you had been working on a problem for a long time and suddenly the answer was there. It was very clear that was the answer. And although there were many things that were still um, not clear to you, you were very certain that you were on the right path. Having that realization that uh, that I believe that, that Jesus Christ had actually risen from um, those tombs did not settle a thousand and one other things about what one was supposed to do with that, what I was supposed to do with that. Did that mean I was supposed to be a monk? Did that mean I was supposed to be a, an evangelist? Did that mean that I have to immediately um, renounce uh, all that I had and um, get into sackcloth and asses and march out into the desert? There was... Uh, all that was left unopened, and that is, in fact, what um, occupied my mind as I went back to my hotel, to hostel, to lay down and, and think about, because uh, I had no clue what it really meant to me, uh, ultimately. And that's what I was um, pondering when I uh, sort of was laying there napping, and I wouldn't say it's a voice, but there was an idea that came into my mind that just would not go away, and that was that I should live as if I would die in six months, that I should really, truly live, and that I could not tell for certain whether I would really die, but that um, either way that I should live as if I was going to die. And so that, that was the assignment. I'm a pretty rational person, I'm, I'm pretty logical, and uh, after thinking the thought that I should live as if I was going to die in six months, the first thought that comes to my head was, you know, well that's pretty silly, I have no evidence whatsoever uh, of, uh, you know, I could live like I'm going to die in six months and not die at all, it would just be kind of an interesting exercise. But at the same time, um, it was equally probable that I might die in six months, it, was, it happened all the time, there was no no guarantee that I wouldn't die. And so fairly quickly, I, des I decided that, that I could not settle that issue of whether I would really die or not, or just think that I was going to die in six months, and that um, in either case, the important thing was to live as if I really believed that I was going to die in six months, um, which is what I set out to do. The next couple of days had a, the kind of joyous experience of saying to myself, okay, um, what do I do uh, for six months if I have only six months to live? And um, the uh, answers to that surprised me as much as the assignment because um, after thinking about it through and contemplating it, the, f the conclusion that I came to was that what I wanted to do for six months was to go home and be ordinary, to, um, to uh, go back to my parents, to help them um, take out the trash and trim the hedges and move furniture around, and to be with them. And I was, I was really shocked by that because I thought that with six months to live I would um, climb Mount Everest or I would uh, go scuba diving to the depths of the ocean or get in a speedboat and see how fast I could go, but instead I wanted to um, go back home and um, be with my family for, for that time. I, of course, did not tell anybody uh, such a, my crazy idea. Um, this is, in fact, the first time I'm really talking about it publicly because it was a, it's a very 
um, uh, scary and sort of alarming idea, and um, I, I never, I never told anybody why I, uh, why I was coming home. I got back to where my parents live in New Jersey, and um, things were unbelievably ordinary. They. Um, and yet I found myself uh, relishing the ordinariness and finding um, it in some ways as exotic as anything that I had traveled uh, to see. And so I was involved in, you know, I helped around the house, I did, uh, dug up shrubs, I uh, worked on a deck, I um, moved furniture, washed dishes, and um, I, I was intending to kind of spend my last remaining six months at home getting to know my parents better and, and myself, hopefully. But about three months into that, um, my <laughs> travel urges, I guess, got the better of me. Uh, and what I was most concerned about is I wanted to see my brothers and sisters, who uh, I had four brothers and sisters, and uh, they were scattered all across the country. And so I felt very strongly that I wanted to see them before I died. And I... Uh, got the idea that the way to see them was to ride my bicycle across the country and visit them on bicycle. But before I did that, I um, made up a will uh, to uh, uh, dispose of the little things that I had, and I had some money left over. And uh, one of the things that I did with that money was I went to the bank and um, got some cashier's checks for like $500,000, and I... Um, I mailed the money uh, to uh, various people anonymously as gifts. And um, I think giving away those thousands of dollars was the, uh, the first true act of charity I'd ever done because there was absolutely no way for any kind of gratitude or elevated um, feelings to come back to me because people had no idea who had sent them that money. It was really remarkable to see the consequences of, of getting an anonymous gift like that because um, when you get a check for $1,000 in the mail, you immediately become suspicious of all your friends of having given that to you. And uh, so there's this sort of like the suspicion of uh, charity, suspicion of goodness that starts to infect um, uh, the people that are around you. and. Um, you look at someone, you think, hmm, I wonder if he gave me that thousand dollars. Does that make sense? You know, you, you look at them and you think, I wonder if he gave me that thousand dollars. And then you act really nice to him. And then the next person you, you see next to your friends, you think, could, could, could this be the person? And, and then you act really nice to them. You know, I, I almost want to begin a little speech here about let us all now take up this practice. <laughs> all of us, all everyone within the sound of my voice, if we all could just do this right now, then I would believe that our little radio show, just 19 minutes into the program, had contributed in some way. I had enough money to um, left over to uh, basically pay for food and, and whatnot on my... Um, bicycle journey across America, and uh, the path that I had to visit all my brothers and sisters was not a direct route. Going from San Francisco to New York, 
uh, actually had to go up to Idaho and back down to Texas and then back up through um, Indiana, so it was a 5,000-mile trip. Uh, the day, which uh, coincidentally um, was exactly six months from um, when I had this assignment, was, was uh, October 31st, was Halloween. And so um, the plan would be that I um, would ride back home so that I would come back to die uh, on the day after Halloween. I think there are a lot of people who have trouble staying in the present. There are, there are some people who like to, to slip into the past as a, as a means to um, perhaps fantasize or escape, and um, they find that the past is the place that they retreat to, and I often retreat to the future. I was not a person who, who planned or had a career uh, staged out or who had... Um, uh, you know, a particular woman he wanted to marry someday or, or some vision of a, of a house. The future that I found so hard to give up was a much more insidious type. It was that of, um, uh, I'll, I'll, uh, I'd like to um, buy this record because, you know, in the future I want to hear the song again and again. Or um, I will... Um, I will read this book, and um, there's some cool ideas in it because someday I may write an article about this, and it's kind of it's good to know that there there was a sense in which my entire life was shifted to the future, and and the, the thought of sort of doing something now for for the enjoyment or the pleasures or the principle or the function of just right now, without any sense at all that it would ever be used again or that it could ever be brought forward was extremely difficult and disconcerting, and um, uh, I, I fought it uh, day by day and tooth by tooth. One of the ways I dealt with this was that I was actually able, by the last weeks, to not think about my life beyond Halloween. There was, there was a, a way in which I had just each time a thought came up about something that was beyond this horizon, I just said, nope, can't think about it, it doesn't work. Um, we have to, to dwell in the present. And um, at the same time I was doing that, I, and I was able to do that, uh, I also decided that it was an entirely unnatural and inhumane way to live. And that um, having a future is part of what being human is about and that when you take away the future for humans, you take away a lot of the humanness, and that it's not actually a very good thing to live entirely in the present, that one needs to have a past, and one needs to have a future to be fully human. was a journey that began at the tomb of Jesus and as I set off to uh, my own presumed death, I did indeed think about um, uh, Jesus Christ who, according to the Gospels, surrendered his own life in a very knowing way. So, so um, uh, we have the, the history in the Gospels of, of Jesus's uh, torment in his soul as, as he approached 
where he knew of his his uh, uh, anointed time to die. So it was it was it was again that that very harsh uh, information of knowing when you're going to die, and um, Jesus, you know, um, soul was was was. Um, in, in great turmoil and pain because 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 of knowing that, and I and I did I, I think I did experience some of of that, not because I had the same weight I was just my own life, but um, Jesus prayed that this burden be lifted and and there were days uh, when I did um, pray that that if I didn't have to die I really would rather not. By late fall, I was um, pedaling through the Appalachians, and it was getting colder and colder, and my hands were freezing on the bicycles, and there was ice on my tents in the morning when I got up. And um, as each day went on, I was coming closer and closer to terrain that, that I was familiar with and that felt like home. And uh, I was riding into New Jersey, and um, uh, I was... Elated, I was elated that I had accomplished this this long journey, and I was elated that I was home to see my my parents. And uh, I came in um, to their house on Halloween day, and um, I was so filled with with ideas and things and emotions that I, I I didn't really say very much. And I and again I I, I couldn't say very much. I I think we had a wonderful dinner. They were of course glad to see me because they hadn't seen me in a long time. They knew I was coming back and. We had a wonderful dinner. Uh, you know, we had baskets of candy, which I uh, gave out to the kids, and um, we had a discussion that night, which was um, um, about nothing in particular. It was not about the future. It was just about, um, I think, talking about our family and my brothers and sisters, and I was telling them all that I'd learned about them, and so it was a very uh, together and um, again a. Uh, uh, not a very dramatic evening, but just uh, a pleasant one, the kind of, of one that you might have a memory about um, as you were dying, which was not a special evening, but just uh, an ordinary evening. And I went to bed that night, um, which was a very difficult thing to do because I fully, I mean, I was fully prepared at that point um, never to wake up again. I, you know, I had been praying, I had gotten everything arranged, and I was at that point, I'd fully gone through in my own mind my own soul, all the things that I might have regretted, and I had righted as, as many of those as I thought I had I could through letters, and um, I was prepared as, as much as anybody could be prepared to die. And so I went to um, bed while the kids were still ringing the doorbells, um, and I went to sleep because I was very tired after that, that long trip. And um, I didn't know what was going to happen the next day. I thought that was... I had done all that I could, and um, the next morning I woke up, and the next morning I woke up, and it was as if the next morning I woke up, and it was as if I had the entire my entire life again. I had, the next morning I woke up and I had my entire life again. I had my future again. 
There was nothing special about the day. It was another ordinary day. I was reborn into ordinariness, but what more could one ask for? Well, Kevin Kelly is 43 now. That happened when he was 27. In his latest uh, rebirth, he's the executive editor of Wired magazine, kind of glossy magazine about the future and the present. He told us that, that he wasn't even sure he has ever even told his parents this story, e- even this many years later. Anyway, he spoke with me and Paul Tuff from the studios of KQED in San Francisco. This is your radio playhouse. WBEZ Chicago. Hey, is Barry there? Pardon me? Is, is Barry there? Yes, he is. He's on another call. Uh, do you wish to hold, or I could take a message, or you can leave one on his voicemail? This is it's his son. Uh-huh. Isn't this starting to sound like a, <laughs> this little dialogue? Isn't it starting to sound like an episode of Dr. Katz? You know the TV show? This is his son. Uh-huh. Yeah. Anyway, so I, I thought I would call my parents in Baltimore and ask for advice on this or first evening of our brand new radio show your radio playhouse can can i leave a message with you or is it better to use his voicemail it doesn't matter i'll put it right on his voicemail okay let's do okay hold on please Baby, what's your hurry? this is the story of my childhood right right there dad is a little too busy to talk but um but there's the recording of you know frank sinatra when when needed Hello. Hey, Mom. Oh, hi, Ira. How you doing? Fine. Can you hold on a second? Sure. This is what it's like with my parents. You can never... They're so busy. Call them. Put on hold. Baby, what's your hurry? When I call my little sister, she works at Disney. And so there's always, there's like Disney music, but they're playing on the hold system, but there's a lot of Disney music, and there's a lot of it that people... Hi. Hi, Mom. Yeah. It, 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 it's me. Yeah. Um, uh, listen, uh, can I, can I uh, record a quick uh, conversation with you about something? Um, well, you know, the, um, the new show goes on the air this week. Yeah. And um, as part of the show, we were thinking about having me call around to different people and get advice from them. 
And I want you to know if you, if you would have any advice. Mm. Do I have any advice? Hmm. Well, can I ask another question? Sure. Who is your target audience? You are such a pro. <laughs> um, I'm saying that you're in danger of appealing to a, to a narrow range of uh, listeners if it becomes um, uh, a little too, um, I don't know what word to use. Artsy. Artsy, yeah. <laughs> you know, are you and Dad still still worried? You know about about me making a, a living in public radio. I mean, I know just for, for years um, you were urging me to just get out and get basically any job in TV that I possibly could. You know, but now that you know I've got my own show, and you, are you guys still worried, or do you feel like things are going okay? Do you want me to get into television still? Um, now that um, Hugh Grant is such a big star, and everybody who sees you or sees your picture thinks how much you look like Hugh Grant, that sort of fires up that TV thing again in me. <laughs> All right, I'm stopping the tape. <laughs> this is me live. That was the tape. Only my mother could possibly believe this. Uh, only only a mother uh, could pretty much believe this. Other other adults see me, and, and the thought that goes through their head is not Hugh Grant. The thought that goes through their head is tall Jew. <laughs> I think, well, gosh, wouldn't they want this wonderful, you know, um, um, humanistic and intelligent reporter um, who looks like Hugh Grant? All right, let's move on. What's the theme for this week? The theme for this week is is, um, uh, new beginnings. Mm. And we have several stories of people telling about about various ways in which their life began anew at some point. You know, that's very interesting because I just did an interview this morning with a, a newspaper reporter. About Romy. I'm just going to st- stop the tape again. This is my own life. I call my mom for an interview, and it's not even her first interview of the day. Like, I was, I was lucky to get, to, you know, to get a booking. And she, she's a therapist, and sometimes she, she um, gets called, you know, by, by the papers and stuff. Romantic love. Sure. And um, people's expectations about relationships. And one of the things I believe is that there are a lot of people who are good at beginnings, but they're not good at middles. Which means what? It means that they like the beginning where there's all this idealization and romantic projections, and the other person can be who they, who they think they should be rather than who they are. And when they get to the middle phase... All right, I'm just going to stop the tape. All right, listen, all of you in the audience right now, let's just agree right now. It's the very beginning of our relation. It's the very beginning of our radio relationship right now. This is our little first little radio date. And I just don't want any idealizing on either side. Okay, let's just make eye contact right now. Remember what George Franklin said about the eye contact. No, idealizing. It's where there's more of a reality-based relationship. They, they kind of um, run away from it because it's not as exciting. It's interesting that you say that because cause actually as we've approached the first show, I've realized that I am much more comfortable with the notion of... Um, Kind of everyday work a day sort of radio work and you know being on every week and and um, you know having pieces on the air, but the notion of saying like in a really big way, okay, this is the beginning it 's the beginning, and we 're going to have like a mm. big beginning and we 're going to make an epic statement mm. um, I feel very uncomfortable with mm. I, I mean so, you're I feel, be- so you are good at middles i 'm better I think at middles than at beginnings mm. that's good that's good because practically all of life is the middle. We've gotten so deep here. I never expected that it was going to that it was going to get so deep. <laughs> this is just 
I'm just very pleased at how deep this has gotten. Now you're sitting there, you're thinking, is he making fun of me? What's happening now? Where, where right, are you? Right, no, right. I'm not. I'm not, actually. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. You, nothing to worry about. Are we going to get a tape of this? Depending on Since how you we're sound. we're outside the Chicago listening area? Depending on how you sound, yeah. Okay. Okay. All right, well, that's my mom, Shirley Glass, speaking to us from Baltimore. I... I don't. I, I don't think she's going to get a tape. <laughs> I do not think she's going to get a tape. All right. Well, um, next on our next on our little playhouse stage, um, we have uh, we have Mr. Lawrence Steger. Now, um, now those of you who've been listening carefully to our program and taking notes, and I know there are many of you out there. You know what I'm supposed to do at this point. You know because because you were listening carefully to Joe Franklin at the at the very beginning of our program. Above all, get the plug fast. That's right. Well, thank you, Joe Franklin. Lawrence Steger is a filmmaker and a performance artist. There, just back from performing in Glasgow, Scotland. He's going back there in January to collaborate with performance artist Ron Athey, who lives here in Chicago. And basically, we contacted Lawrence and we told him the story that you heard um, over the course of the last half hour, Kevin Kelly's story. This guy who believes he only has six months to live goes on this cross-country road trip. And as it turned out, when Lawrence Steger found out, the day that he found out that he was HIV positive, this was five years ago, on that day, it was the exact day that he and a friend left on a cross-country car trip. So we commissioned him to do a little piece about about his experience. And here it is. Title, Road, Treatment. It's shot entirely on video, mostly handheld. Shaky, out of focus, bad color... Overblown color, actually. It looks sort of the way colors are separated on an old television console, yet still has all the outlines of the images repeated. The outlines of the images, the silhouettes repeated over and over ad nauseum and fading into each other. Um, can I get this microphone adjusted a little so I don't have to lean over so much? Yes, yeah, sure. Just pull that. Okay. Check. One, two, three. <clears throat> Sound better? Yeah. Sorry. Thanks. Um, Synopsis. The story concerns Luke, gay, white, Midwestern, late 20s. Follows Luke on the day that he's informed of his HIV-positive status. Luke cops a stance of cold, brittle. Not unlike the Harrison Ford narration on Blade Runner, but there's a hint of vulnerability to Luke. Have we got the Harrison Ford or the Rutger Hauer voice? Yeah. Great. Um, roll it. Enhance 5719. Track 45 left. Great. Take Stop. it under me. That's great. Story follows Luke. He's accompanied by his college buddy, Bill, and both are packed for a road trip across the country to San Francisco. Um, this isn't the right section of Blade Runner. Let's just kill the Blade Runner. Locations. Car interior. Gas station exterior. HIV clinic parking lot. HIV clinic interior. Highway. The music is Strauss's four last songs. Particularly Rua, Minasile, sung by Dame Janet Baker. Okay, can you take it under me? Hold. Follows Luke and his friend Bill to the gas station and to the clinic, the last stop before getting on the highway. Oh, okay, 
take it out. Take out the Janet Baker. Bill loads one hits of pot while driving on the way to the gas station and to the clinic. Can we nix that Strauss music? It's kind of too mournful. There, <clears throat> there, there's really no music on the soundtrack. It's uh, stark, crisp. Maybe some songs coming from the radio at the clinic's desk. Great. And definitely on from the car radio, mixed with uh, surfing on an AM radio. But no music. The drama is constantly being undermined through the cool, collective quality of Luke's demeanor. He seems detached. Quote, I'm not sure how I feel. I feel a little sad. Sort of mad. I guess blank. But I'm okay. I'm sure I'll get a handle on it. End quote. Luke thinks he's sounding like a short story assignment in a creative writing class, or worse, trapped inside an artsy novel. Luke imagines himself in a television dramatization of himself. Camera pulls back from behind Luke's head. Sort of on a mini crane. Camera floats. Hovers over the back of Luke's head. The ceiling of the car must be incredibly high, he thinks to himself. Bill pulls into the closest parking spot in the clinic, blows out the last of the one hit, and as he's knocking the brass pipe into the ashtray, turns to Luke with that slightly watery look in his eyes from too much intake. Luke takes it as one of those Care Bear looks that he's experienced before from Bill. A little clumsy since Bill has to force his face into a sympathetic posture. Quick close-up on the corner of Bill's mouth. There's a moment of anger flashing in Luke when he registers Bill's look. When Bill asks him, What are you thinking about? Luke responds, Who's thinking? Nothing. I hate thinking I'm in a novel. He thinks to himself. Cut to interior of the clinic, the reception area. Can we change the sound bed here? Great. <clears throat> I'm take it down. Just to, great. <clears throat> In the scene that we talked about on the phone, the clinic waiting room scene, that scene uh, flips back and forth between various security black and white cameras mounted at the ceilings. The nurse assigned to Luke's anonymous number is a black drag queen named Stephanie who wears a full nurse's outfit complete with a little paper hat that sits atop of her freshly coiffed hairdo. She's the only one in the clinic who wears a real uniform. Stephanie has the longest fingernails that Luke has ever seen on anyone. Luke thinks briefly about how the fingernails keep on growing even after a person dies, but he pushes that thought away with his fingers to his forehead, wonders why he's thinking about that. It's that novel thing again. Stephanie, the drag queen nurse, walks Luke back to the small cubicles that the tests are administered in, and then used to relay the results. Luke's narrator imagines how many people have been in these cubicles 
and what they would look like if they were all piled on top of one another. Piles of tested bodies. Cut to Stephanie closing the hollow core door. It makes that hollow core door sound. Do we have that on cart? Perfect. Maybe a shot from a security camera that shows all of the cubicles in the clinic. Luke imagines himself in a George Tooker painting that was reproduced in his sixth grade reader. He wonders what his sixth grade teacher would think of Stephanie. He wonders if his sixth grade teacher was ever tested. He imagines her body in the pileup of bodies who have come to the clinic. Stephanie's been saying something and Luke has to blink his eyes again to refocus. He explains to Stephanie that he's been expecting this result, that he's experienced a large share of AIDS, cared for and likewise buried lots of his friends, but it doesn't seem to come as a surprise. Stephanie says, You can cry or hold my hand. I just want you to sit for a moment and let it sink in. Luke thinks, Whatever. Cut to Bill in waiting room, flipping through people's the year in pictures. Cut back to close-up of Luke, forehead wrinkled. He thinks his narrator wants him to get out of the cubicle. He waits for Stephanie to finish her spiel. Thanks her and shakes her hand, getting a slight scrape from one of the fingernails close-up on Luke's hand. No scratch. The walls seem to pulsate as Luke walks down the hallway to the reception area. He tries to be as blank as possible to Bill. Um, I'm not sure about this final section. I know that we talked about it ending on the highway with the car being surrounded by bikers on their way to the Sturgis Bikers Rally, but now and now I like the idea of it ending on the highway entrance ramp. Okay. Cut to interior of car pulling out of parking lot. Luke keeps looking straight ahead as he murmurs, I'm positive. Long, slow pan from the back of Luke's head to the back of Bill's. There's no reaction in either of their faces, or better, the profiles of their faces. This is the longest shot. They don't look at each other. Perhaps this scene would be shot in blue screen with the camera in the back seat and the sky surrounding the two heads of Bill and Luke having that old, scratchy 16-millimeter time-lapse exposure so the clouds seem to be moving at a rapid pace. Flickers, flips back and forth between real sky and blue screen backdrop. <clears throat> Voice comes up on a car radio. Try not to think of the future, just live in the present moment or something like that. You got that? It comes onto the radio. I also decided that yeah. it was entirely unnatural and inhumane way to live, and that um, having a future is part of what being human is about, and that when you take away the future for humans, you take away a lot of the humanness, and that it's not actually a very good thing to live entirely in the present. That uh, one needs okay. to have a past. Luke comments to, to Bill: to be fully human. "Live entirely in the present, huh?" Bill drives and looks out the corner of his right eye to see what position Luke is holding his head in. Luke looks outside passenger window and every once in a while turns to glance at Bill. Long pause. There's dead air. 
Cut to Luke's point of view. Car is pulling onto entrance ramp of highway. Luke sees Hitchhiker with a sign that he scans for any remote meaning to the narrative. Luke sees himself outside of his own story. He can't read the Hitchhiker's sign. He knows that he's on a long, silent journey. He leans over to turn off the radio. Cut to black. I met a little chick in a neighborhood bar. I took out for a ride in my brand new car. I said, Hey, baby, move over close by my side. The chick moved way over to the other side. Uh oh. You gotta walk home, baby You gotta walk home, baby You gotta walk home, baby Cause you just won't treat me right We parked to look at the city lights She said, it really is a very beautiful sight So I moved a little closer to her so I could see. She said, oh, no, Daddy, move away from me. Uh-oh. Get out of the car. You got to walk home, baby. You got to walk home, baby. Well, Lawrence Steger is a Chicago performance artist and filmmaker. This is your Radio Playhouse. I'm Ira Glass. Okay, what am I doing right now? What am I doing right now? That's right. That's right. Eye contact. Look right in the eye. Eye contact is everything. That's right. Advice from the master. Okay, let's review our program so far. Okay, <laughs> let's just review. Let's just get things straight right now. Our stories so far have been about people whose futures were taken from them and were thrown into the present in one way or another. And when I, I guess I, I guess when sort of any any big uh, emotional moment happens, you are you are thrown in the present in a really um, aggressive, aggressive way, uh, wh- whether you choose to or not. You have this 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 sense of hyper hyper sense of reality. Well, the next story is about someone whose future was taken from him when he was wrongly imprisoned for twenty years, and uh, his sentence was commuted two years ago, and he found himself reborn into everyday life. It was like I just, I don't know, seemed like the oxygen was even different. Do you know what I mean? The air seemed to be thinner. You know, I'll tell you what's been a real kick for me, getting up cooking breakfast, you know, making pancakes and eggs and bacon and stuff like that. It sounds drab maybe to the, you know, everybody would think of that as, that's really drab, you know. But for me, that's really exciting. And that's one of the things I always dreamed of doing. I also dreamt of finding a very lovely lady, and I have. I, I, inside, I'm happy. Inside. This is Ed Ryder. He was um, imprisoned for murder and was doing time in Greaterford Prison in Pennsylvania. And a few years ago, a key witness who had testified against him admitted to lying while under oath, and other evidence came forward. He, he was made a free man. Back when he was in Greaterford Prison, he played trumpet, and he sang with a jazz band. And that whole time, he dreamed of this new life, you know, a new life that he would have outside. 
as a professional musician. And that that's what he's working on. That's what he's working on right now. Um and he and he's playing he doesn't have a CD yet, but he, he's playing gigs in the real world. The first time I played when I got out, out of prison, I didn't feel compelled to be so exact like I did when I was at Gratiford. Inmates are the worst critical people in the world. You know, they criticize anything you do. In prison, you have a lot of, uh, you know, you have a lot of musicians, you know. I mean, yeah, yeah, after all, you know, musicians, they don't make no money. So I guess the first place you find them at is in prison. But you have a lot of guys who are musicians. And, you know, even though they might not be actively playing anymore, you know, they'll, they'll be quick to criticize you. You know, whether the chord is not right, whether you didn't flatten the ninth, you know, whether you didn't raise this fifth or, you know, you guys didn't play the changes right. Although it, it might not have took away from the structure of the music. It's just that I guess you can say that that prisoners have a tendency to think like classical musicians would. You know, everything has to be perfect and exact the way it's written. Everything has to be like that. You know, there's no going against the grain. You know, and here, you know, in the world, you know, people are a little different, you know. They don't concern themselves so much with that as much as how are you entertaining us? How are you helping us to feel better about ourselves? How are you making us feel better? At Greater For It, there's nothing you can do to make them feel better except to release them. So if you can play for a Gratiford audience, you don't even look for an applause. Just as long as they don't boo you, you're all right. You know? Whether it's, if they can't find nothing wrong with the music, they'll tell you, you know, you, you just didn't turn right. You know? When you held the horn up, you didn't you didn't you didn't hold it on a forty five degree angle. It didn't look right, you know. So they'll find something. Now you know how we heard uh, people earlier in the program talk about the importance of living in the present. But um, when we interviewed Ed Ryder, he pointed out that in prison, the most important thing is to keep your eye on the future, on the day that you're going to get out, and that the guys who just live in the present do really badly, because of course the present is so terrible. I think. When I was in prison, I, I dreamed more about the future. You know, I, I in my head, I just, just had a lot of you, a lot of plans, a lot of things that I just dreamed about. I just dreamed of doing and dreamed of accomplishing. You know, you're forced almost to. You know what I mean? You, you have nothing else to look forward to but tomorrow. You know, you're constantly hoping and in hoping. You, you're, you're trying to plan something for the future. We asked him if he is uh, still playing the same music now that his future is here and he's out. And you know, we thought that maybe the songs that he used to play would just bring back these hard memories of prison that he'd rather just as soon avoid. But he said, no, he plays the same numbers now that he used to, though sometimes they mean something different to him today. When I was in Gratiford, I, I, I always listened to it. I had a tape of it. God Bless the Child has got his own by Billy Holiday. And what it meant to me when I was at Gratiford, and it has the same meaning now, but it's different in the sense that when I was at Gratiford, when it, when she said, you know, them this God should get, then it's not should lose. So the Bible says, and it's still his news. Mama may have, Papa may have, but God bless the child that has his own. Well, in my mind at Gratiford, I thought that, yes, I was the child that had his own because I was out here on my own. I had no help at the time. Uh, there was no help. I, I seen no way. I was like a child. I was like a child because I had no one I could turn to. My parents had, had passed. I had no one I could turn to. And I felt like every time I would listen to that, 
I felt as though she was talking directly to me. You know, and for me, that meant that I was on my own in this prison situation. And I was going to have to make it the best way that I could. And I was going to have to muster all the energy I, I, that I could possibly muster. You know, now, when I was released and I heard the same song again, it still had that meaning. But now it's a different, I, I'm on my own differently because I'm not in prison anymore. You know, that's not the struggle no more. It's me. But I'm on my own now because I've I got things that I have to do. I have responsibilities now that I have to take care of. You know, I have bills that I have to pay. I have job responsibility. I have a lot of other things that I have to do, and I have to do these things on my own now. I don't have no prison guards waking me up in the morning, telling me, hey, it's time to get up, or it's time to go eat, you know, or it's time where you guys can go to a shower. You know, I don't have that anymore. I'm on my own. So all this now is dependent upon me and my own initiative. Them that's God shall get. Them that's not relieved. So the Bible said, and it still is needs. Mama may have. Papa may have, but God bless the child that's got his own, that's got his own. You know the strong get more, while the weak ones fade. Empty pockets don't, they don't make the grave mama may have papa may have but god bless the child that's got his own that's got his own money you've got lots of friends they all keep on hanging around your door. But when one is gone and all of the spending's in, they don't come around, they won't come around no more. Rich relations give a crust of bread and such. Go on and help yourself, but you better not take too much. Mama may have, mm, Papa may have, but God bless the child that's got his own. God bless the child that's got his own. That's basically some of it. Ed Ryder joining us in the Playhouse from the studios of WHYY in Philadelphia, speaking with me and associate producer Nancy Updike. Ed Ryder's a big um, Billy Holiday fanatic. That was the word he used, fanatic, when we asked him about it. So when we asked him to play a number uh, with his horn, uh, with his trumpet, he played uh, Loverman.
pretty much all the time we have for this evening. Funding for this program has been provided by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Elizabeth F. Cheney Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The show is produced by Dolores Wilbur, Peter Clowney, Nancy Updike, Elise Spiegel, and myself. Uh, contributing editors, Paul Tuff and Jack Hitt on the West Coast, Margie Rockland on the East Coast. I've got that backwards. Paul Tuff and Jack Hitt on the East Coast, Margie Rockland on the West. You see, you get so confused when you have two pieces of music running at the same time. We had help this week from KQED in San Francisco, WHIY in Philadelphia. We got the idea for interviewing Joe Franklin from David Isay's book and CD, Holding On. I guess I was supposed to get those plugs in at the top, but whatever. Thanks for advice and support to uh, the staff of Fresh Air, including Audrey. Lots of songs in tonight's show came from the record, record library of Mr. Steve Cushing. He reminds you that if you liked the music you heard, you will love his show, Blues Before Sunrise. And if you didn't like the music... That would pretty much be our fault, and um, and you'll still like his show. Hold on for a second. There we go. I knew Billy Holiday was on one of these turntables. There we go. It's uh, His show is heard Saturday and uh, Sunday nights starting at midnight here in Chicago and on many other public radio stations as well. Chris Heim hooked us up with the Django Reinhardt numbers on the show. You can hear her in just one hour here on WBEZ. Other people to thank because this is our first show. Sheila Leahy, Don Klimovich, Kathleen Jenkins, Gloria Chacha for raising the money. Al Antlitz for designing our little studio. Bill Myers and Al Mix for working overtime on this sweet little studio to complete it. it sounds really pretty, except for when a certain board operator, namely myself, <laughs> has three songs playing at once. Claude Cunningham gave us a thousand little uh, things. Jim Vilcek is the guy who installed our door today, and we are grateful to him. Fawn Williams has given us lots of ongoing technical advice. Tori Malatia has supported the show from the start. We'll be back next week, same time, we hope, from WBEZ Chicago. I'm Ira Glass. I've heard it said That the thrill of romance Can be like a heavenly dream